0: One of my favorite missionaries is Hudson Taylor, missionary to China. He has a great quote. I think you'll like it. That's what we called this sermon today: God's work done in God's way. And the more of the quote goes this way: God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. That was said by Hudson Taylor. He arrived March 1st, 1854 in China as a 22-year-old Chinese missionary, but coming straight from England. Taylor was confident that the Lord would provide for him to do God's work in China as he followed the Lord's ways. He was part of something called the Faith Missions Movement. They did things a little bit different. Uh, His methods were controversial. He did not ask for funds, but relied completely on the Lord for the money needed. He also accepted missionary workers with no college training whatsoever. He required missionaries to identify with the nationals by wearing Chinese dress, which was shocking for the time period. And he also believed that control of the China mission operation was to be in China instead of England. Well, the missionary life took a toll on him. He buried two wives and six children in his lifetime. In 1870 alone, he lost two children and his wife, Maria. On one occasion, he was captured by authorities who beat him and his friend, choked them, pulled their hair, and insulted them. And yet when Taylor noticed that all this abuse was drawing a crowd, he somehow took the opportunity to preach the gospel and even passed out (laughs) Missionary uh, literature, Christian literature. He later commented about the, the situation and he said, we reminded each other as brothers that the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer in the cause of Christ. The mission society founded by Taylor brought over 800 missionaries to China, began 125 schools, led thousands to Christ, and established more than 300 workstations in all 18 provinces of China. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. Today, we're going to see in Nehemiah 3, what some may call the most boring chapter of the Bible. If you're new here to Grace Church, welcome. We're glad to have you. I'll remedy that in a moment. But what we have is 50 people from different towns, families, professions, They divide up the Jerusalem wall project into 40 or 41 sections, some as long as 1,500 feet in sections, and they put up 10 gates. And what you will see is this chapter reads like an appendix. It's much more than just a chapter, though, on constructing the wall. And even as I use the word boring, I don't describe it that way, and neither should you. And the reason why is we, because we see in Romans 15, 4, everything written in the past was written for our instruction so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. What we're reading today is for our instruction and it's also to give us hope. And we also see not only that, but some of you could also quote 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Some scripture is Breathed out by God. No, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable if you know the story, uh, for teaching, for a proof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Perhaps some of the reasons we don't feel adequate, equipped for every good work is we're not reading our Bibles, in even the hard sections where we have to mine a little bit deeper to get to some of the applications. You may wonder, why is it here? Couldn't they just say they just rebuilt the wall? Well, they could have, but the Holy Spirit decided not to. There's several applications we can get. Here's three I would give you. Number one, by rebuilding the wall, they really helped establish reestablish the Jews back in the promised land. And it's important for them to see that. The Jews aren't just some Random people that the Babylonians and the Persians took over, no, they're back in the land. And this belongs to them by divine promise of God. Number two, by rebuilding the wall, they display to the entire world that the Lord keeps his promises. You and I don't focus on that enough. But you know there's not one promise in the eternality of God that he has failed to keep. And think about the great wickedness in our own lives that sometimes we just don't trust him. But God's never broken a promise. And it was important to let all the peoples of the world know that, that God keeps his promises. And number three, by rebuilding the wall, they're encouraging to see their identity. This is important. They're encouraged to see their identity in this city. Jerusalem is the place of worship because that is where the temple of God is. Now, we living in the New Testament times, we don't focus so much on a city as much we focus on the person uh, of Jesus Christ. And certainly they would focus upon the Lord as well, but it's where the Lord's special presence was, was in the temple. Now the special presence of the Lord is certainly in the person of Jesus Christ, but also where else? In us. So we focus on what the Lord focuses on Colossians 3 puts it this way: set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died. Past tense. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. If we could really start to focus the way these Old Testament Jews did, that this is this is home for me to be with God. That's home so I don't have to always be looking for other persons to fulfill me. I don't need to find that perfect job, although it's certainly, for some of us, it would be nice to change these things, but ultimately, home is where the Lord is. One other aspect we'll look at by way of introduction is really, this is what we're gonna see, is this is how the body of Christ is meant to function in this chapter. It really is, In, in three ways. Number one, they have a shared vision for their service. The vision is the glory of God. That that's what they're that's what they're shooting for here. 1 Corinthians 10:31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, and they are doing that here. Just wonderful to behold. Number 2, they have dedicated leaders who are setting the example and de- delegating the work. As a matter of fact, you know the first guy that stands up and starts building, it's the high priest. He doesn't get his servants. He's like, okay, let's, let's move. And he starts rebuilding the wall. And number three, what we're going to see is they have workers willing to uh, be forgotten. What do I mean by that? Well, whenever a president has a second term, he worries about the L word called his legacy. It's important for a president to have a legacy, not really. But he thinks it is. It's important for us to to have that. And and the Bible actually speaks just directly opposed to that in some sense. John can say about Jesus Christ, he can say, he must increase, but I must decrease. You see, these workers, they're willing to not let their names be, be put out there. But God in his kindness puts their names in here. But they're willing to be forgotten. You know, it's interesting, in the history of the church... Sometimes we have a problem of giving too much credit given to the most popular guys, like, oh, in the Reformation, Luther and Calvin, who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, But we put perhaps too much emphasis and we forget the small guys, like Johann Dober and David Nitschmann, two men you've perhaps never heard of before. They were Moravian missionaries in the 18th century who get this they tried to sell themselves into slavery in order to win slaves to Christ in the West Indies. They begged to be sold into slavery. Well, this was the 1730s, and by this time in the New World, although you did have slaves from every race of mankind, in the 1730s in the New World, they were not, white people could not be slaves anymore, roughly. And so they couldn't do it. Well, they still went overseas and they lived poorly. They won thousands to Christ, in part because their leader had inspired them. Their leader, of course, Jesus Christ, but another preacher named Nicholas Zinzendorf that said, it's been said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. There's your legacy. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. And that's what you will see these workers today. they just build a wall. That's what they're doing, and they're doing it for the glory of God. So this is the word of God. Let's take a look at chapter three. Before we do, let's just, by way of one last introduction, verse 18, 19, and 20 of chapter two. And I told them, this is Nehemiah, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And the Jews said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Then Eliashab the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to them, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. So, once again, what you have is the high priest up in Adam. And he is rising up with his brothers, and they are building this wall. Now, just to give you, I don't have the geography of it, but we feel certain that this is in the northeast section of the city of Israel, or rather, city of Jerusalem. I told you all last time, do you remember uh, from which direction was Jerusalem always attacked? Do you remember? It was the north. It was the north because they're surrounded on valleys, the south, east, and west, but the north was not. And so that's where the enemies would always come to destroy Jerusalem. So we see that that wall was eviscerated. It's gone, and that's where they start rebuilding. This northeast section, they call it the sheep gate. Uh, that's, the gates were critical entry and exit points to the city, much in the same way that our household doors are. You need to make sure that they're secured. And so they have a sheep gate there. The gate was, as you probably guessed, where shepherds brought their flocks to sell, where sacrificial sheep brought to the temple through that gate. And Eliashib, his name means God restores. Now, before I go any further, I should give credit. Stan Fair has done a study over Nehemiah in translating. He translated over 40 names. He sent it to me a while back. It's good. So you'll find that encouraging. Talk to Stan afterwards. Uh, There's no cost, right, Stan? Okay. Um, But note this, Eliashib, he is the grandson of Jeshua, who's the high priest. And some of you go, Jeshua, or also Joshua. Where do I know that name from? He was the guy who came with Zerubbabel, and they were the ones that first built the temple, the foundation of the temple. So, if you will, Eliashib is the grandson, and he's got to be thinking right now I've got an opportunity to rebuild the wall. I need to play my role like grandpa did. And that's what he does. He's the first one out of the chute. And what do they do? They consecrate the wall which is kind of interesting. Normally you would consecrate sacred objects, but they're consecrating the wall here or the gate. Uh, To consecrate something means to recognize it as special, set apart for the Lord and his service. According to the Old Testament, they would consecrate by using um, oil mixed with myrrh, cinnamon, and other spices. And so by consecrating the gate here, you set it apart for the Lord's service. By the way, I think it's important we as believers don't use consecrate simply as an Old Testament word. It's important even for us. next house you buy, next car you purchase, next child you have, you don't need to get out the oil and cinnamon and things of this nature. But it's important to set these things apart for the Lord's service. Even taking the time to pray through it with your family and saying, we're setting this one apart from the Lord, whatever this one might be next. We also have the men of Jericho that are joining in, which is interesting. The men of Jericho don't live in Jerusalem. You're going to see some other people that come from other cities that are stepping up to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. They don't live there. Why are they doing that? Well, they're doing it because this is where the Lord has called them. This is the place of worship, and they're going to be a part of it. Now, verse 3 through 5 the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Meramoth, the son of Uriah, son of Akaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoaites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord." We've seen the fish gate. Now we're here at, uh, we've seen the sheep gate. Now we're here at the fish gate, which was the northwest portion of the wall. That's where the fish market would be. That's where the fish came into Jerusalem to sell. And we have this place of Tekoa. Some of you that know the prophets very well in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets came from Tekoa. Do you remember whose name was? It was Amos. Amos is from Tekoa, and the Tekoaites are repairing, except for one group of Tekoaites, the nobles. It says in the ESV, they would not stoop to serve the Lord. Literally in the Hebrew, it's like this. They did not bring their neck to the work of their masters. It's a very strange language, but it's not strange if you consider the oxen of Israel. Certain times you'd have oxen that would be really testy or were tired and would not bring their neck to the yoke anymore. They were rebellious. You had to deal with them. And so you couldn't, you couldn't plow that day because those oxen would not bring their neck to their master. It's interesting when you consider what is happening at the time. It, it could have been the Tekoaites had been in the land before these exiles returned, And now these exiles suddenly have influence. You've got Nehemiah and they're thinking, who is this guy? And they won't bow their neck to their master. It's so completely opposed to Jesus Christ, is it not? John 13, when none of his apostles are taking the role of a servant to wash feet, I can imagine when they came to that uh, Passover, uh, they may have looked around and said, okay, which one of us is going to do it? There's no slave here washing our feet. I'm not going to do it. I'm certainly not going to do it. And remember, at that time period, as I told you all a couple of weeks ago, you've got everything out there on the streets in agrarian societies. And so at this point, Jesus steps up and does it himself. And he tells them, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Now, we do have foot-washing Baptists. That's not a derogatory term, but there's certain uh, denominations out there that would say we have three ordinances, not two. It's the Lord's Supper, baptism, and foot-washing. But the problem is the New Testament church doesn't really see it that way, and I don't think Jesus is actually putting forth an ordinance here. He's not saying you should wash one another's feet, I think what he's saying is, in essence, is this. This is the worst job. And look, I'm doing it. So I'm doing this not only as, a, as a, a sermon, a sermonette, but also as a picture for you to do the same thing. So if you will, it would be like if our toilets were to have problems, who's going to fix that? That would be you and me correct? You see, you always have folks in the church that won't. I'm not going to bow my neck to that. I No, I've worked hard all day. You don't want to be one of them. You don't want to be told, you know, Jeff Brown would not bring his neck to the work of, to the yoke of his master. He just wouldn't do it. Don't be that person. You get written about, don't be that person. <laughs> Verse six through 11. Joida, the son of Pasea and Meshulam, the son of Besidiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana And they laid its beams and set it's, its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Meronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Once again, they're not living there and they're coming to rebuild. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, repaired. And Maqijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pamath, Moab repaired another section in the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohash, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Okay, just to hitting on a few things here. The Yishana gate, it's also called the old gate. That'd be a gate that led from the old city to a new quarter of Jerusalem that Hezekiah had built during his time. And I think you'll see here that two People to uh, what would you say, professions of people are building uh, the wall and building gates, and they are goldsmiths and perfumers. Now, I just had a, uh, a fence built in my house, and if I'd ask the guy, hey, is this what you do full time? And if he looks up at me and he goes, actually, I'm a perfumer. I'm going to think twice before I've handed this job now off to him. And I'm thinking, can I fire this guy? Because he doesn't do this for a living. Or if he says he's a goldsmith, he doesn't build fences. Well, I think what you're noting is you're seeing the middle class that is jumping into this mix. But also you're seeing lack of ability. And rightly so. That's what the Holy Spirit wants you to see. These aren't construction people. These are people that lack ability. But as you've perhaps often heard, God doesn't look for ability. He looks for availability. And we see that in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Oh, this reminds me of actually a, a missionary, funny enough, a guy named Vigio Olson. He was an American missionary in Bangladesh for 33 years, and yet he also helped rebuild 10,000 houses in the 1970s. He had no training in building houses, and yet he writes that he derived unexpected inspiration from reading this chapter, what many consider some of the least interesting in the Bible. He says, I was struck that no expert builders were listed in the Holy Land Brigade. They were priests, priest helpers, goldsmiths, perfume makers, And women, but no expert builders or carpenters were named. By the way, as a side note here, if you're at Grace New or if you've been here a long time and you've kind of been riding the pine, you don't want to get out on the field because you're like, I don't know, God will show me. My encouragement is to step out in faith and serve the Lord because what I've found out is ministry is like a funnel. And if you jump in right here, it may not be a good fit for you, but God in his sovereignty does what? He moves you exactly where you're supposed to be. So jump in. And remember, he's interested in availability. So what happens, they are building this, we see a broad wall, that's, that's the entire western wall. It's 20 foot wide, folks. You can see it today. It's actually, there's pictures of it. It's in Israel, it's in Jerusalem, that wall is still there, built by these perfumers and goldsmiths. The Tower of the ovens, that seems to be an area where the public ovens were, or maybe ovens that were used for firing pottery, it's hard to tell. But I don't want to miss, before we go on to verse 12, what you saw in verse 11, that we've got a man there working, and he is with his daughters. Now, the reason why it's there is probably because he had no sons. There would have been other daughters that would be working with their families. But I want to draw your attention to something that is vitally um, misplaced. It's probably not the right word, but misconstrued. When you consider the history of Christianity, and not only the history of Christianity, but also Old Testament Israel, as compared to any other religion out there, they would put high regards on women comparative to anything out there. Now, we haven't always lived that way, but certainly we should. Jesus was a rabbi who taught women. You know how many other rabbis did it? None. Rabbis don't teach women. Jesus did. And so we have the role of women in the history of the church, I think is is. Good, and it certainly, it could have been better at times, but we have here Romans 16 where Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church. Most commentators will tell you when you read Romans 16, you will see that this is the one that is taking the letter from Corinth to Rome, Phoebe. She was a deaconess in the church, a servant, official servant in the church. They had no authority over men. That that would go against 1 Timothy 2.12. And yet certainly who else in the early church did things like helping with the ladies, poor, pregnancies, sickness, death, burials. There is so much that women back then and here at Grace do as well. 1 Timothy 3.11 describes these sort of official servants as dignified, not slanderers, but sober minded, faithful in all things. Paul can say in Philippians 4, Euodia and Syntiki, help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So these sort of servants of the church, and we're all servants of the church, to be clear, but these were kind of officials set apart for different tasks. Uh, Calvin certainly was a, a fan. He writes about the deaconesses are are official servants in his church. Spurgeon as well. Um, The high role that these women played, it's just, I I think it blows me away. When you consider Martin Luther, a lot of people don't know the name of his wife. You need to know her name. Uh, Her name was Katharina von Bora. Remember the situation. Uh, Luther has just Uh, if you will, uncovered the gospel. It doesn't mean there were no believers besides Luther, but he was the one who really got used to to really shine the light on the gospel in Romans 15. uh, uh, Rather, sorry, 15, 17. Uh, What you had, though, is he's a monk. Monks don't marry. And there were many people that began to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ, not only from his pen and his tongue, but many others. And there was a group of nuns that were at a nunnery, and they became believers, and they wanted to get out of the nunnery. (laughs) Can you blame them? (laughs) So they wanted to leave, but the problem is you can't just leave, pick up and leave. You have to escape a nunnery. And so they got in touch with Martin Luther, and Luther said, well, maybe we can work something out. And they were able to bring in these large uh, fish barrels, and they would put the women inside, and they were able to sneak them out. Well, within a short amount of time, these women wanted to serve as godly wives and uh, mothers and many of them were able to get married except for one who named Katharina von Bora and she had set her cap on Luther or one of Luther's best friends. So, you know, she was willing to go either, (laughs) either route. Should a former monk marry? Should a former nun marry? Well, marriage is good. And so, uh, They asked Luther about it, and he said, you know, the more I, at first he said, no, of course not, but the more he thought about it, he said, you know, I think my marriage would please my father, rile the Pope, cause the angels to laugh, and the devils to weep. (laughs) And so Luther married her. He was in his early 40s. She was in her 20s, and he nicknamed her the Morning Star of Wittenberg, where he lived. And the reason why the Morning Star is she would get up in the morning at 4 a.m., no pressure, ladies. 4 a.m. to take care of breeding and selling cattle, running the brewery to support the family. That's another story. Um, six, she raised six biological kids and seven nieces and nephews that she adopted. They adopted. Caring for students who roomed with them, religious refugees and visitors seeking to speak with her husband. And let me tell you what, with compared to many of the other women at that time, She wanted to know the Bible. She wasn't interested in just helping me love my husband and kids, which is vitally important. She wanted to know the Bible. And so he he called her Dr. Katharina as a a kind term for her her because she was such a godly woman. My point in, in, in saying all that is that you had different peoples from all over Israel helping and it wasn't just the big names like Nehemiah. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah's name or the person of Nehemiah as listed, is not mentioned in the chapter at all. Continuing on, verse 13 and 14, Hanun, the inhabitants of Zenoa, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a 1,000 cubits of the wall. That's 1,500 feet. As far as the dung gate, Malkijah the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. So we have two gates here, valley gate. Remember, Jerusalem is built upon a lot of hills. And we have another one called the dung gate. It's also called the gate of ash heaps. It's where you would burn trash and waste. Got to hand it to Malkijah to take that one on, but he does. Verse 15 through 19. Shalom, the son of Kolhose, the official of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it and covered it and hung its doors and its bolts and its bars and the wall of the pool of Shelah at the king's garden, as far as the steps that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of... Which is a different Nehemiah, by the way. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, official of the half district of the Beth-zur, made repairs as far as a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rahum, the son of Bani, Next to him, Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Bave, the son of Hanadad, official of the other half of the district of Kela. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, the official at Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent of the armory at the angle. So just a few comments here. We've got the fountain gate it connects the pool of Shela. You know the pool of Shalah, don't you? It's also called in the Greek, Salome. This is the pool of Salome, where the water supply would come from the Gihon Spring, and they would fill it up. You have the house of the mighty men. This would be David. Remember, David kept his 30, give or take, mighty men. They would be just this elite class. You have their names listed in Old Testament passages, but as we continue to kind of traverse church history in the names that you don't know of, perhaps, you have Theodore Beza, who was one of the Reformation's mighty men. Beza translated a Greek New Testament. He was a wise leader. One way I think he was in particular wise is in the city of, um, in Switzerland, in city of Geneva, they decided to come up with a company of pastors And with this company of pastors, there would be one that would be the chief pastor, the senior pastor of sorts. And Theodore Beza says, I don't think it's the best idea. I think you ought to rotate those leaders. This is what we do here. Actually, we rotate leaders of the the, um, chairman of the elders. And he thought that a good idea because he knew even back then that power does what? corrupts, certainly. So, uh, Beza was quite the guy. He, after St. Bartholomew's Day Mass, uh, the massacre that occurred in 1572, there was militant Roman Catholics that arose against the Protestants. And y'all listen, they killed between five and 30,000 of them, just slaughtered them. Well, Beza saved many of these refugees and brought them to Geneva. So, You have these people that are building the wall and their names are inscribed for eternity. They had no idea. I don't think they cared. Verse 20 through 27. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Meramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After him, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite. The buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Petadiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants, living in Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. And finally, after him, the Tekoa ice repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Can I show you just a bit of archaeology? Well, I'm going to anyway. So, verse 25, you'll see this. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king. This tower was found in 2007. There was an archaeologist named Eliot Mazar digging around there, and he found dog burials and strange Persian. Age pottery beneath this tower. So the tower was found, just to be clear, but they thought the tower was from the first century. They thought it was from the time of Christ. But what this archaeologist says is there's no way when you take a look at what's happening right next to the tower because you've got Persian Age pottery, which would have come straight from the time of Nehemiah. So, and not only that, but it really just confirmed that Nehemiah did not build the wall Be careful when you teach it to your kids. Certainly in the north, they did, where the wall had been eviscerated. But by and large, he's rebuilding, he's repairing. And that's the Hebrew word, chazach. It means to repair. And it's used 35 times in this chapter. You know what it proves to me? If people would just read the Bible, they have enough. Nehemiah's repairing. He's not building an entire wall. He's repairing most all of it. Uh, We also have the temple servants, a couple of other things. The temple servants in verse 26, they live in Ophel. Ophel was kind of a a part of Jerusalem. It was kind of of an area that kind of stuck out landmass-wise. The temple servants, it's interesting, the Hebrew word is nathinim, which means the given ones. The given ones Why are the given ones living at the water gate? And who are the given ones? Well, it it translates that as temple servants. The question then you should ask yourself is, who were the temple servants? Y'all, this is the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites, remember, they they were the ones that played the trick on Joshua. And so Joshua could not destroy them. But Joshua says, from here on out, you're gonna be splitting wood and carrying water. And... Joshua, it says, gave them to the priest. He appointed them. And you think, oh, how horrible to be a Canaanite and have to do that for the rest of your life. Really? You're actually in the, you're practically in the temple courts hearing of the one true God. And God in his mercy saves many Gibeonites, I'm certain. Finally, you have the Tekoaites and they repair another section. Remember in verse five, the nobles wouldn't rebuild but you can't help but wonder if the, the rest of the Jehoahites are like, you got to be kidding. Our nobles will not rebuild. Well, we're going to take another section. And that's what they did by God's grace. Finally, verse 28 through 32: Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zelaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. And after him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate into the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. There we have our goldsmiths and perfume folk and they're getting after it, are they not? So we have three gates here that are spoken about. Horse gate, this is where the horses would be stalled, put in stalls. Uh, East gate, I bet you know what that one is. That's the gate that would lead straight into the temple. Uh, courts there. And then the muster gate, that would be where you would perhaps muster the troops. Just to pull up a couple of names here by way of interest, Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph. That's an interesting way to describe him. Why does it call him the sixth son? Well, he's the sixth. but then you beg the question, where's his brothers? Why doesn't it say Hanun with his brothers? I get the point. They're not there they're not there. And I think there's a great sort of application for us today. You don't have to follow on the track set before you. By God's grace alone, you can take a different way. And some of you may need to hear this today. You're not your grandparents. You're not your parents. You're not your siblings. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You be Hanan. You be the sick son that does something different. By God's grace alone, you do it. We see Meshulam here. Meshulam, he carries out repairs in front of his, in the Hebrew, it's, basically it's in front of his chamber. He's got a one-bedroom flat right next to the wall. And he's rebuilding that little section right there. And I think it shows us that we see this picture in the New Testament, the parable that Jesus gives five talents, the two talents and the one talent. And that guy just buries it. Meshulam says, hey, this is my flat and I'm gonna build the wall. And he may have written, Mashulam was here. You can't help but wonder <laughs> Why? He's not talented. He doesn't have that. He doesn't own much. He's just got this one square, but that's where he's gonna camp. And God's gonna bless him. He's gonna put his name in this eternal book. So we started off by mentioning and we'll end with mentioning God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. Jesus isn't much better. In Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I've heard Christians say before, we're building God's kingdom, and that's, I know what they mean by that, but it's just not good theology. None of us build God's kingdom. None of us build God's church. He builds it. We just join Him. We just join Him in the work. It reminds me, when we first went to Oklahoma years ago, some of y'all said, know that we spent time there, and so you say, oh, y'all are from Oklahoma. No, no, we're not from Oklahoma, just to be clear. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but we are both from the Dallas area, and we spent time up in northeast Oklahoma. It's beautiful up there, and um, I wanted to kind of embrace where God has us, and so there was a large spot in front of our house where we could plant a tree, and so we planted the uh, Oklahoma redbud, uh, except for it was white. I'm colorblind. And so I planted the wrong tree. But nevertheless, the point is, is I had Courtney join me and I bought her a little shovel. She was four years old and the thing was just as big as her. And I said, let's, let's plant a tree. We'll call it Courtney's tree. Are you interested? Oh yeah, daddy. So we got out there. What I didn't realize in that part of the state, northeast, southeast, I think is very similar too. It's very pretty, real wooded, but there's rocks right underneath the surface, and there's thousands and millions of them. And so I'm struggling to pull these rocks up, and Courtney hit the rock once or twice, and then she laid her little shovel down and went over and picked some flowers. And I said, Okay, Courtney, come back over. Let's build, let's 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 plant this tree. And she she didn't do that much. She's four. The shovel is as big as her, even a tiny one. So we ended up planting it, and we would always go, hey, that's Courtney's tree. Courtney didn't do that much. It was me. It's my tree. But I think God, in his kindness, isn't this what he does with us? Hey, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you something by my grace alone that you're actually going to lay your, your, your crown before me one day. It's going to be ultimately the result of me completely. But I want you to join me in this. And that's what the Lord wants for each of us today. He builds his kingdom. He builds his church. In his kindness, he lets, him join, lets us join. So I'd give you a couple of applications, and then we'll be finished. And I would tell you this. Number one, if you are in Christ today... You are part of the body of Christ. You have been called to the ministry. Can I just shoot that horse and bury it once more time? Don't ever ask me, when did God call you to the ministry? Because I'm going to ask you the same question. Because when you became a believer, you were called to the ministry. I just happened to get paid for it, y'all. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's true. And God does that. He, He allows that for certain folks, and it has nothing to do with anything. It's just a matter of we are all called to ministry. Ministry just means service. It's just the Latin word for service. That's all it is. First Peter puts it like this, 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each of us has been given a gift. I don't know what yours is, but, and I, I wouldn't even encourage you to try to figure it out. I'm just encouraging you to just to jump in the water. And the Lord, like the funnel aspect, directs you exactly where you need to be. He's sovereign over His church, over everything. Number two, I would say this: if you are in Christ, the Lord is at work in you. The Lord's doing it, so no pressure. I like what Colossians, or rather Philippians 2:12 and 13, says, uh, "The Lord, work out of your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." Did you catch that? He changes your will to conform with what his desires for you and the church is. And he raises up the work for you to do as well. It's the Lord. Now, finally, for some of us today, um, I would ask, I guess I would ask the question, is the Lord in you today? Because Jesus, when he meets this with a Samaritan woman, he says one of these days that the idea is that when you become a believer, you have streams of living water flowing from you. You have the Holy Spirit. So I'm asking you, do you has the Lord in you today? Because he's with believers. So let me just quickly give you the gospel, the good news. First off, the bad news. You're a sinner. Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that's against God, against his commands. So you're guilty. We're all guilty. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to live the perfect life you and I could never live and to die a horrifying death that he gave himself up for it. Rose three days later, proof positive, this is my son. Only in him is there salvation. Salvation in no one else. So for you today, I would encourage you to come to the King. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith that not of yourselves, that it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. It's all God. It's the Lord. So my encouragement is come to him today. Realize that you're a sinner deserving of the wrath of God and trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your work. Pray for the believers in the room today that you would just grant us the grace to trust you, Lord, that we would realize that uh, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Help us to walk in them today. You've got stuff for us to do, but Lord, ultimately help us to realize at all times and in all places, it's just the grace of God. It's not us. It's what you're doing in and through us, and yea, even in spite of us. And for anybody that does not yet know your Son as Savior, grant them salvation today, we pray. Amen.